0: You know how sometimes you think things, but you know you can't say them out loud because everyone will find out what an awful person you actually are? So I have a confession. It's Lent, after all, and confession is good for the soul, as they say. Last year, when our governor and our president both got COVID, (laughs) Yeah, I had one of those moments. Well, they had that coming to them. If you're going to play down the whole thing and not only refuse to wear a mask, but shuck your leadership responsibility, or even worse, make fun of those who are wearing masks, you're asking for it. I didn't say it out loud, or at least maybe only to Jesse, but I was thinking it, and yes, some even worse thoughts than that flickered through my mind about the whole thing that I won't dignify by saying out loud, but they were there the way those thoughts come. They had it coming, maybe something even more. You know, it's not easy being a pastor when you're not a very good Christian, (laughs) but that's my confession to you this morning. And I figured it was a good day to confess that sort of thing because it's exactly the kind of thing Jesus is talking about in Luke 13. Apparently, Pilate had killed a few more Galileans. Remember, Galilee is that place in northern Israel that Jesus was from and spent a lot of his ministry in. So when we hear about the Galileans, we're talking about Jesus's people We're talking about the disciples' people. It'd be a bit like Margaret Ann Boley or Christy Harris talking about Southerners. Pilate, he had killed a few more the way that Pilate was prone to do. You see, we we actually know from not just the scriptures, but from history books, in fact, that Pilate was actually very violent and ruthless. He didn't hesitate to slit a few throats and fling their blood around so that everyone would get the message, don't mess with Rome, and definitely don't mess with me. And just to add a little Injury to insult or insult to injury. Pilate flung some of that Galilean blood in with the sacred Jewish sacrifices into their worship with God. It's a little bit like maybe flinging some blood on our church's nativity scene or flinging some blood on the Easter morning flowers. The message was pretty clear. Just remember who was really in charge. And of course, everyone is talking about it. I mean, they're shocked. Everyone's trying to make sense of it because they are so unnerved by it. That's how it goes when tragedy hits your world, isn't it? There's something that shocks or shatters the autopilot that you've been running on. And so, of course, you stop, and suddenly you can't stop thinking about it or talking about it because something in us needs to make sense of it. Something in us needs to understand how this happened and why these things happen. It's actually this deep psychological need that we have because if we can make sense of it, if we can understand why then we can figure out how to be sure it won't happen to us. And so thoughts just start coming through our head, if even for a moment. Thoughts like, well, their kid is probably having that problem because of the kind of parenting they do that's different than us. Or thoughts like, well, maybe they're getting a divorce because they don't treat each other the way that we treat each other. Or thoughts like, well, they probably had COVID coming to them because they didn't take it seriously like we did. The list goes on in one way or another. It just helps us to sleep a little better at night if we can understand why or how suffering happens to someone else. Because if we can understand it, we can be sure to figure out how it won't happen to me. But then along comes Jesus in Luke 13, asking us, do you really think that because these Galileans suffered in that way, they were worse sinners than you? Do you really think that suffering came into their life because you're better at the game of life than they are? I don't think so, Jesus says. In other words, sometimes suffering, it just happens. Sometimes it just comes, and you cannot make sense of it. It's not God punishing them. It's not the consequence of poor choices. It's not because of some deficiency on their part. It just comes. And here's the real kicker, that suffering Suffering of some kind, it will come to us all. It's just part of the experience of living in this world. Sure, your suffering might look different than my suffering, but it will find each of us along the way. And you may have no idea the kind of suffering that I'm carrying in the background. They didn't suffer because they were worse sinners, Jesus said. But let me tell you this. Unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Now, that sounds a little strange at first, I know, but what he's saying is that our only hope in facing this suffering isn't to make sense of it. Our only hope is to repent, or in Greek, to metanoia, which means literally to turn from one thing to another. In other words, our hope is to turn from all of those false ways of trying to make sense of it or all of the false things that we use to try to help ourselves feel better and to feel safe turn from them toward God. Remember what I said in my midweek video this week that went out on Wednesday? Repentance is simply turning our life back to its source, the source of life, back to God and I read that beautiful quote from Kendall Ray Rothis. She puts it one in part in there it, that that to repent, it's just simply to confess. Oh, yeah. Now now I remember <laughs> again, I remember the lap of God that I can crawl up into is better and safer and warmer than all the cold, measly idols I've surrounded myself with for protection and comfort. And so here in Luke 13, don't think Jesus is saying, hey, you'd better admit you're a worthless sinner that you are. It's your only hope to get in good with God and be protected from the random suffering of this world. In fact, that's might what it, that might be what it kind of sounds like there at the end, but it's exactly the very thing Jesus is critiquing in the beginning. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners? Nope. When Jesus talks about our hope being repenting, it's not a hope that will help us avoid all suffering. It's a hope of being so rooted in the very source of life itself that when suffering comes your way, it doesn't uproot your life and destroy you completely. Do you see that difference? Our hope is in that turning again and again towards God, a bit like a sunflower always bending toward the sun, which is its source of life and nutrient. Or or it's like this turning again and again like a spiral always turning toward its center. Our hope is that ongoing turning to the one who is the source of life itself, to the one who is the source of beauty and joy and meaning in our lives to the author of the redemption and the reconciliation that we need in the midst of our suffering. Our hope is to repent, to turn, to keep reorienting ourselves to the one who will always, no matter that suffering that comes, no matter the mistakes that were made, no matter the violence that was suffered, the one who will always keep calling us and drawing us and welcoming us to our home. That's what Jesus is getting at. As everyone's hearts are aching that day and their bodies are tense when they begin to remember again, about what Pilate did to those poor Galileans and what Pilate might just do to them or to their loved ones. Yeah, you're just as vulnerable as they are, Jesus said. It might happen to you. And guess what? That is pretty unnerving. Unnerving. You are just as fragile as them. Let's be honest with ourselves. And hey, guess what? One day, one way or another, you will die too. You can't avoid it any more than the Galileans could. Your only hope is learning to put your trust in the one who is the source of your life. And then Jesus tells us a parable. A parable about a fig tree that's so barren, most folks would come by and say, well, that's a waste of space. Why don't they cut it down? In fact, that's exactly what the owner of the vineyard finally does. Look, cut it down, gardener. Make space for something that will bear fruit and make me a profit. That's what he tells the gardener. And, you know, that is the voice we so often hear. It's a subtle voice in the marketplace of our lives, isn't it? Either prove your value or get out of the way for someone who can. That's what makes working for some businesses pretty cutthroat. Either prove your worth in our economy or stop taking up space in our neighborhoods. That's what makes capitalism so, so cutthroat sometimes, isn't it? And let me just chase a little rabbit tail and acknowledge that that's why what makes retiring so hard for so many people after years of, you know, living up to these demands and producing and making profits and having the satisfaction that comes with hard work and having something to show for it, suddenly your life has to find a different kind of orientation, doesn't it? It's the same kind of thing that makes stay-at-home parents sometimes struggle with their self-worth. And it makes people with disabilities have to work twice as hard for less wages. And it makes, yes, those people who carry their own suffering in their own unique way, whether that's a suffering of mental illness or the suffering of a physical illness or the suffering of some kind of loss in their life, a brokenness, it makes those who suffer kept at an arms distance from the rest of us and not exactly the kind of person our society values because with all that suffering they probably just can't produce the kind of things our society values. See, if you're not producing profits, the vineyard owner wants on that little square piece of dirt you're taking up, then He's going to tell his gardener to replace you. For three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I still don't find any. Cut it down, the owner says. Why should it be wasting the soil? But did you notice that the gardener seems to have a different perspective? The gardener doesn't really see the fig tree the way everybody else does. The gardener actually is the one that knows the fig tree the best. She's the one that planted it and nurtured it and pruned it. You see, to the gardener, the the fig tree is actually a bit more than what it produces, more than its profits and its usefulness, more than what most people see. To the gardener, the fig tree is this unique life that's been nurtured and cared for and watched over along the way. And, And well, here's the thing. Only the gardener really knows the fig tree's story. The vineyard owner who drops by once a year doesn't. The by's on the side of the road, they don't. Only the gardener knows about the locusts that came last year and did a real number on that fig tree. The tree almost didn't make it, but you know what? It pulled through and now it's even stronger than ever. Besides that, only the gardener knows that this particular little plot of dirt in the garden that the fig tree is growing in, well, it's not the easiest to grow in to begin with. You see, not all plots of dirt are the same, which means not all fig trees have the same chance of making it. And well, several of them didn't make it in that little plot of ground, but so far this one has, and that's a miracle in and of itself. It also means that this fruitless fig tree not only has some characters, but its roots are working harder than most and have found a way to survive when others didn't. The vineyard owner, he, he has no idea about any of that. The passerbys, they don't see it either. All they know is that the fig tree looks pretty darn barren. I'm sure glad it's not my fig tree, they say. All oh, that fig tree, well, it probably wasn't worth the space it's taken up. Well, somebody probably wasn't nurturing their fig tree. The gardener, on the other hand, knows better. And so she makes a deal with the landowner. Let me keep trying. Let me dig up more of this bad soil that it's been trying to grow in. Let me fertilize it and nurture it because I promise you there is more to this fig tree than you see. So here's the thing. When you see some barren fig trees and the same kinds of thoughts go through your head that went through mine last year, well, they probably had that coming. Maybe they were asking for it. If only they had fill in the blank with your own judgment about them. Just remember that you don't know their story as well as the gardener does. You probably haven't spent any time in the soil that they're trying to grow in. And that gardener, well, she hasn't given up on them the way that you might be prone to do. And even more importantly, if the branches of your own life have seemed a bit bare the last few years, and if it seems like every time a new bud of possibility sprouts, it gets broken off by another passerby, remember that the gardener is not done with you. Others might think you're not worth the trouble. Shoot, you might think it on occasion too. But not the gardener. She's out there working the soil. She's even willing to get her hands down in that rotting manure, if that's what it takes to fertilize those struggling roots of your life. Because the gardener, she's not just the source of the whole universe. She's the one who planted your particular life and knows better than anyone the soil that you're trying to bear fruit in. So hang in there and trust the gardener. Don't give up because, well, she's not giving up on you. She can be a bit stubborn that way. In fact, I have a hunch that the gardener, she will keep on nurturing and pruning until that day when she knows you have given all you can give and you've borne the fruits she planted you to bear. And it's only then with a full heart that she will lay you down to rest and help you to become that fertile soil for what she wants to grow next. Amen.